Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it up. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. All right, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a traditional Bible, but you'd like one and you're comfortable, just raise your hand and one of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. You can also take your smart device and open up the version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures. Those have already been uploaded and we'll put the scriptures on the screens behind me just to make it as easy as possible for you. If you're watching us online or one of our other gatherings, I love you. And I'm so glad that you guys are a part of our family. On March the 22nd, 1630, a Puritan leader named John Withrop, he stepped onto a boat called the Arabella and he began a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean with 11 other ships, 700 fellow Puritans, 240 cows and 60 horses. It was the largest migration from England to the New World to that point in history. They were leaving England so that they could establish what would be called the Massachusetts Bay Colony and to form a government based upon their own convictions, including religious freedom and the principles of the separation of church and state. And the idea of the separation of church and state was great in theory, but one of the unforeseen side effects is that we have had generations of Jesus people here in America who have never known what it means to suffer for their faith, which is great until you have to suffer for your faith, which is why anytime anyone identifies differently than us or is pro anything that we're not, we wanna fight or we wanna throw those people away rather than to wade deeply through the waters of the word with them. But all around the world today, there are people who are suffering because of their relationship with Jesus. They're in prison, they're being tortured, they're being executed. As a matter of fact, more people have been persecuted for their faith in this century than in all other centuries combined. Now, while Winthrop was stepping onto the shores of what we now know as Massachusetts, halfway around the world, there was a handful of Japanese Christians being subjected to massive persecution. The military-led government at the time, they, they hated Christianity, looked at it like it was a foreign import, a tumor that simply needed to be cut out. And so they sent troops to cities, towns, and villages, and they put a picture of Jesus on the cross, on the ground, and they ordered the people to walk on the picture. Their theory was that no true believer of Jesus would ever walk on a picture of him hanging on the cross. Between five and 6,000 Japanese believers refused. They were tortured and they were put to death. Some historians believe it to be the greatest percentage of people to ever die for their faith. It was almost every Christian living in Japan at the time. After being tortured, they were taken to cliffs. They were pushed over the edge and they died as they hit the rocks below. But while they were being pushed, It's been recorded that many of them cried out, Lord Jesus, receive our spirit. And if you know the book of Acts, you'll recognize that as the very same words that the martyr Stephen yelled out before he died. Point being, as believers, we come from a lineage, a 
a heritage, if you would, of suffering, of persecution for our faith. But for the most part here in America, we've been shielded from that. We've been preserved from fully understanding the connection between being bold and faithful witnesses and suffering the pains of persecution. But I have a presumption that that preservation from persecution may not last in our nation. And of all the things that I could have ever been wrong about, I certainly hope that I'm wrong about that. But just in case I am not wrong, I wanted to hopefully try to prepare you this morning with a message that we're calling, Don't Be Ashamed. Let's pray. God, we love you. We honor you. Thank you. Thank you for worship. Thank you that we, we are in your presence, God, that we can sit here at your feet, that that you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, and everything in between. If you created a big bang, you created it with but a word, that your word has power and that it has strength and that this morning we could take that word and we could install it into our hearts. Pray this morning that our inner operating system would reboot God, that it would recognize this new download into us and that our hearts and our minds would be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I believe that persecution is progressive. It starts small and it starts young. It presents itself in rules that are contrary to truth. It presents itself when kids are told that they can't do things in the classroom that they are commanded to do in the scriptures. Like pray or read or share these scriptures. It, it progresses into having to tolerate everyone else's opinions and beliefs even when they defy our opinions and our beliefs. It's labeled in being called repressive by a culture that represses us for holding our beliefs. And that type of culture creates a climate of fear and of shame, which have been two of Satan's biggest weapons in his attack against the advancement of this gospel since the beginning of time. And so this letter to Timothy was intended to prepare him, to equip him, to push past that barrier and to be bold and faithful in preaching the message of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to begin reading at chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Then I'm going to come back and I want to give you some thoughts on what we just read. And I'm going to begin my discussion at verse 8, but I'm going to begin my reading at verse 6 because I kind of want to get a running start. And so Paul says, this is why I remind you, he's talking to Timothy, to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands upon you. For God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed about me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength that God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us. He called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus. And he's made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. God then chose me, Paul, to be a preacher, to be an apostle, to be a teacher of this good news. That's why I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it because I know the one in whom I trust and I'm sure that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. So hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching that you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Jesus. 
Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that's been entrusted to you. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia, they've deserted me, even uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus. To <laughs> Sounds like I was about to sneeze, didn't it? God bless you in Jesus' name. Onesiphorus uh, uh, and all his family because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. Mm. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Jesus' return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. Now, in this first chapter, there are three charges that Paul gives to Timothy. I want to refresh you on the context. Uh, Paul is in a Roman prison because he's suffering under the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero, who was crazy, who was literally an absolute madman. Followers of Jesus had become a huge problem for him. They were upsetting the status quo within the empire so much that he burned half the city of Rome and he blamed it on Christians just so he could have them imprisoned and could have them executed. It's fascinating to me how just 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, Christianity was already having such an impact on Rome that Nero had to take such drastic measures just to try to get rid of them. I wonder why we're not having such an impact. The gospel was already deeply impacting the culture. And just one generation, it had reached this boiling point where it had come to the heart of the most powerful empire in the world. And so Nero, this madman, he launched this persecution under which Paul not long after he wrote these words, would eventually die. He would be drugged into the center of the city and be decapitated. And so he's sitting in prison, a dungeon, a hole in the ground with just this little opening above him so that a little bit of light and a little bit of air could come in. And he's, he, he's writing one final letter to his friend Timothy to prepare him to receive this really serious gospel charge. He, he had finished his work. He knew that he was about to die. And so he wanted to hand this ministry, if you would, over to Timothy, his young lieutenant, his right-hand man. The time had come for Timothy to step up and take responsibility of the leadership over the churches that Paul had started. And so Paul's giving him this letter that it's difficult, it's weighty, it's full of challenges. And the reason for that is he wants to get him ready for the heaviness of carrying the mission and the mandate. So we talked about the first charge last week from verse six, that Timothy should fan and aflame the gift that the Holy Spirit had given him to preach and teach the gospel. And Paul was essentially communicating that the Holy Spirit had given Timothy the power to accomplish everything that God had asked him to do. And he's given you the power to accomplish everything that God has asked you to do as well. But what he hadn't given Timothy and what he hasn't given you is a spirit of fear. Or like I said last week, he hasn't given you a spirit of cowardice. Why do we have a generation full of Christian cowards? Why do we have a generation and a culture full of people who have the answer to every problem but are too cowardice to communicate the answer that they have. If you had a needle at the crib and I had cancer and you knew that if you put that into my veins and cancer would be cured. Do you know how furious I would be with you if I found out you got the cure to what ails me, but you're too afraid to offend me by giving me the cure? God has not given you a spirit of fear because fear is not 
of God. He had given Timothy and he has given you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So Paul's saying, for that reason, Timothy, I'm charging you, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Like, I, I know that Nero's killing people, but I need you to tell everybody who you can who Jesus is and what he can do. And that's Paul's second charge in chapter one. It's the one that we're gonna look at today. Next week, I'm gonna talk more specifically about verse 13 and 14 and the charge that Paul gave Timothy to guard the message of Jesus. That's a super important message. Uh, you don't wanna miss that. Listen, you don't wanna miss any of the messages in this series, because this is a seminary level class that you're gonna get for 10 weeks on less than 90 verses. And so today we're gonna to talk about not being ashamed of Jesus. And like I said, the context is one of persecution and it brings up two questions. Uh, why does the world persecute Christians? And number two, how does the world persecute Christians? Why does the world persecute Christians and how? Uh, well, the why question has already been answered by Jesus. While getting his disciples ready the night before he died, he said, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant, is greater than his master. If they persecute me, pause, they're gonna persecute you. So he's saying, if you're a Jesus person, if you're a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, this is a promise to you. If they persecuted him, you can expect the very same. But why? Why, why does the world treat Jesus the way that they do? Have you ever thought about that? When did, why did Jesus become such an enemy? I mean, what did, what did he do other than love you? My friend Alan, he has a line, he has a little quote. He says, I'm just trying to love people. <laughs> Why are you mad, bro? Like, Jesus, all he, you know, I mean, all he did was die for you, but you know, let's, let's be ticked off at him. And so, like, John's gospel answers that question too. Jesus said, this is the verdict. The light, he's talking about himself, has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Did you catch that? They hate the light because they love the darkness. They hate the light because they want to continue living the kind of lives that they're living. We live in a dark world full of dark people. We live in a dark world full of people who want to keep living in darkness. We think that everybody's miserable in their sin. Guess what? I know plenty of people who they, at least externally, they're not miserable in their sin. And so we think that we're going to live this meek and meager life and that people are going to be attracted, but we have the fullness, the Bible says, thereof. And so when you live in a world that is filled with people who love the world and who love darkness, when you bring them the light of Jesus, they're going to hate you the same way that they hated him. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I just came here to encourage you. I just came here to encourage you that everybody's gonna hate you in Jesus' name. Here's another angle. One day, Jesus was speaking to his brothers, like his real brothers, not his homies. He was talking to his real brothers. So at that point, they didn't believe in him. They were, they were uh, arguing with him constantly about the way that he was going about ministry. And so Jesus said to his brothers, hey, listen, Jack, the world can't hate you, but it hates me. And it hates me because I tell it that what it does is wrong. So Jesus was saying, listen, guys, the world can't hate you. It's impossible because you belong to it. 
It's gonna love you. It's gonna welcome you. It's gonna be kind to you, but it can't love me. It can't welcome me and it can't be kind to me because I don't belong to it. And so I'm gonna be persecuted. And I wonder, can the world hate you or is it impossible because you belong to it? Because you're just like it, because you talk like it, eat like it, drink like it, entertain yourself like it. You're no different than it. Does the world love and accept you as its own? That's slippery. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the boldest men in the history of the church, he said, we should always preach the gospel message the way Jesus did, so that after our preaching, men who've heard us will either hate us or hate their sin. We should communicate our faith in such a way that even when we're done, people will either hate our message or they'll hate their sin. Wholeheartedly living for Jesus should always produce two things, converts to Jesus and persecution, always. As Jesus people, we are essentially meant to be a fork in people's road. That when they encounter us, they have a decision to make, either continue suffering in their sin and darkness or come to Jesus and know his peace and forgiveness. And even though we're offering them a message of forgiveness and peace, we're also telling them that they need to change. We're also telling them that they need to repent. So guess what? When they come to that fork, they're either going to hate their sin or they're going to hate us. And that, that's when the persecution starts. That's why the world hates uh, Christians and loves to persecute us. The next question, though, is how? How does the world persecute Christians? I've noticed in my own life, the world tends to persecute in two levels or on two stages, societal rejection and active opposition. Societal rejection and active opposition. First, societal rejection. This is where society starts spitting you out, rejecting you, doesn't doesn't want you, doesn't like you, avoids you, tells jokes about you, makes fun of you, they don't include you, they go out to lunch and don't ask you, they have parties and they don't invite you, and they don't because they can't talk the same when you're around, they can't act the same when you're around, they can't tell the same jokes, and so because of that, they don't want to be around you. I remember when I met Scott Sneer, he's the guy who told me about Jesus. I, I tried to buy weed off him. He told me that I didn't need weed. I needed Jesus. I thought, man, this dude ain't nothing but a trick. And so I didn't want to be around that cat. I avoided him at all costs. He'd be walking down the sideway. I'd walk to the other side of the street. He'd come into the cafeteria, try to sit down next to me. I'd get up and I'd move to another table. I couldn't stand that joker. But I'm so glad I thank God for Scott's faithfulness. He never gave up. He kept seeking me out. He kept praying for me. And ultimately, I came to Jesus. But I, I rejected him. And, and it makes me wonder, why is societal rejection such a powerful persecution against us? Why does it matter so much? Like, what's it matter if people hate you on social media? You need to get off social media anyway, half y'all. Half y'all ain't spent five minutes with your husband, but you've been playing Farmville all week. Somebody say amen. I don't even know if people play Farmville anymore. That's how outdated I am on social media. People are like, you use the same old analogies for 10 years. So you're playing friends with fiends or whatever. You're playing some stupid game, and he's over. You wonder why you're, you haven't been whatever. So anyway, uh, here's why societal rejection hits us so much as human beings is because we love to be together. We want to be liked accepted. I mean, the Bible said it's not good for a man to be alone. 
And, and so because we want to be liked and we want to be accepted so much, some of us will reject Jesus just so others won't reject us. Your second level of persecution is active opposition. And honestly, most of us have never faced this. Uh, but people are facing it all over the world in exchange for their faith. Attacks on their lives, possessions, livelihood, freedom, security, simply because they're Jesus people. All over Russia, India, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, China, are, they're, they're risking everything to follow Jesus. They're losing their jobs, their homes, their freedom because they're Jesus people. Years ago, my friend Alan Griffin and I, we were on a missions trip to Hong Kong and we were recruited to smuggle Bibles across the Chinese border. And so we showed up at this giant warehouse and a guy from Arkansas began to give us instructions about what was gonna happen, talked about we were gonna get to the border and that uh, there'd be people with machine guns and that we just keep, he said, just keep your head down and keep walking. There's a 50-50 chance that you're gonna get through. I said, what happens if we don't get through? He said, don't worry about it. And so we get to the border and there were guys with machine guns and soldiers from the People's Republic Army and uh, they gave us an instruction and he said, here's what you do. When you come through the border, the minute that you get through, take you your backpack and you put your backpack down at your side. And when you put the backpack down at your side, that is the symbol. And a kid is going to come by. He's going to snatch the backpack like he's stealing your backpack. Won't nobody care because you're an expat. They don't care if your stuff gets stolen. Take the backpack down, put it, and then still snatch the back. And he said, and then somebody else is going to come by and they're going to grab y'all. They're going to push you in a white van. I said, the devil is a liar. I seen taken. I ain't playing. And so they said, you in a white van and they're going to take you to an apartment and then you're going to rendezvous with the team and you'll be able to help with the Bibles. And they take the Bibles and they tear them apart and they distribute them one book at a time. Somebody gets a book of Genesis, somebody gets the book of John and they distribute them all over China and they have these little underground churches where people are taking their lives in their own hands. We went to this apartment and y'all, it was filled. I'm talking about floor to ceiling with nothing but Bibles, thousands and thousands of Bibles. And this was these people's ministry that they, would, that they would take these Bibles from these kids, take them out the backpack, put them on the shelf, tear them apart and distribute them to underground pastors. And I thought, this is so dope. Till I found out later that when they were caught with those Bibles in their apartments, that husband and wife were sentenced to life in prison. But the people who were printing them, they were captured. And they were executed. And so when we encounter the first level of persecution, Jesus says, don't be ashamed. But for this second level, this aggressive persecution, he says, don't be afraid, which is a whole lot easier said than done. But y'all listen, it's the price of admission. Those are the two commandments that he gives us. Don't be ashamed and don't be afraid. And so those are the two areas of our lives that the enemy attacks in our walk with God. Have you seen these two things in our culture, fear and shame? How do you deal with it? Well, let's look at shame first. Uh, I think that the enemy tempts us with three types of shame. He causes us to, number one, be ashamed of Jesus' name. But verse eight says, don't be ashamed to tell others about Jesus. Number two, I think he causes us to be ashamed of Jesus' people. Verse eight continues, and don't be ashamed of me either. And finally, I think he causes us to be ashamed of God's word. Some of y'all, I'm telling you, you are, you, you, if, if you're not ashamed of this word, you wouldn't know it by the way that you respond or the way that you talk. Because in the times of controversy, don't be afraid to lean on the word. 
You're like, you're mean in this series. Hey, listen, Jack, sometimes you've got to be real and just not play because I'm trying to save your life. I was having a discussion with somebody last week and they were talking about one of these hot topics. You know there's hot topics. They come, they go. They're like Jiffy Pop. They pop up and then they sink. I'm talking about they come, they go. Everybody wants me to get up here and address it from the stage. And me and this person were having a, a, a dialogue, we'll say about one of these hot topic things that's all over the news and is spreading from Washington down into each individual state house. And I just wasn't willing to bend on my stance. And so this person, they just kept presenting me with variables. Well, what about this? Or, okay, well then what if that? Nope, I ain't changing. Because it's already been covered in here. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the truth because this is the power of God that brings salvation. Arguments and debate have never brought salvation to anybody, but this is the way, the truth, and the life. None will come to the Father except through him. And so I'm not gonna give in to fear or shame, and you shouldn't either. And so the question is, how? (laughs) How do we overcome fear and shame? Let me me give you five ways today. Uh, Here's the first. Number one, to overcome fear and shame, look to the future. It's a whole lot easier to endure pain when you're looking to a promise. It's a whole lot easier for you to endure chemotherapy when you know on the other side you're gonna be cured. It's it's a whole lot easier for you to not buy a new boat. It's a whole lot easier for you to drive an older car. It's a whole lot easier for you to put money into your 401k every pay period when you know that at 62, you're gonna get go to that lake house and you're gonna get spent all day fishing for bass rather than one week of the year. So it's easy for you when you look at the back end and you reverse engineer for you to endure pain when you know that there's a promise. And Jesus has given us a promise. But at times that promise is going to require pain. So Paul says, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. In the original language, in the Greek, there's a sense of taking your portion, taking your share of suffering, being a fellow partaker in suffering. He's saying, if you're a believer, you have a portion of Jesus' suffering to bear, and you can't escape it and be faithful to him. You say, why do you say that? Just a bunch of verses. Philippians 1.9 says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Jesus, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Acts 14.22 said, in strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or 2 Timothy, we'll talk about this later in this series, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And this verse is a tough sell to American believers, but it's not a tough sell to most believers in the world, that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And it seems gloomy, but it's true. And if you wanna be ready, you have to be realistic. You are going to be persecuted. But this life isn't the end. Turn your eyes toward heaven. Look to the future. Here's the second way to overcome fear and shame, is focus on God's power. Paul says, join me in suffering, how? by the power of God. You you cannot stand up under a world system whose sole purpose is to shut you down and to shut you up with your own strength. But with God's power, you can do anything. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that includes living godly lives and sharing Jesus 
to a sinful world. Now, is that power gonna take away the nerves or the hesitation that you have in wanting to do that? No, but it does give you the strength and the boldness to push through those nerves and that hesitation. Even Paul dealt with this. He was writing to his friends in Corinth and he said, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching, they weren't with wise or persuasive words, but they were with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest upon human wisdom, but on God's power. To overcome fear and shame, focus on God's power. It enables nervous, hesitant people like you and me to change the world. Here's the third way to overcome it, is, is study role models, both positive and negative. Let's start with the negative. In verse 15, he says, as you know, Everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. Let me ask you a question. Prior to this series, prior to these verses, had you even heard of Phagellus or Hermogenes? Did you know anything about them? No, me either. I could tell you I've studied the New Testament from start to finish, and this is the only mention of their name, their shameful desertion of Paul in the mission of Jesus. And I don't want that to be written about me. Sean Hennessy, shameful deserter of Jesus. Here's another cat, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Demas, comma, that's a pause, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone back to Thessalonica. Why did Demas desert him? because he loved the present world. I wonder if you love this present world. Here's one more just for good measure. It says, at my first defense, no one came to my support. <laughs> That's jacked up. He said, everybody deserted me. Have you ever felt like everybody's deserted you? Like you're by yourself trying to live for Jesus, trying to figure this thing out on your own negative role models. The book is full of them. Thankfully, it's also full of positive role models. I mean, Paul was one. Uh, but he tells Timothy about another guy, Onesiphorus. And Onesiphorus was a Christian business guy who came from Ephesus to Rome, 830 miles, just to look for Paul so that he could encourage him, refresh him, bring him food and clothes, and pray with him. Why was that so courageous? Because Nero was hunting down, torturing, and murdering Christians. And by coming to Paul... Onesiphorus was connecting himself to him, and he was declaring his commitment to Jesus despite the risks. Positive role models. They're all through this book. Stare at them. Study them. Copy their faith. Copy their boldness. Here's the fourth way to overcome fear and shame, is review your calling. Huh. Paul said, God has saved us, and he's called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. You are called to be holy. But what does that mean? I mean, we tend to think of holiness in terms of not sinning, which makes it seem impossible. Uh, so when I think about holiness, I think of it not in terms of not sinning, I think of it in terms of separation. We are called to be separate from this world, to be different than them. Uh, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so as you live for Jesus and walk in holiness, you should be changing. You're not going to be who you used to be. You're, you're going to be different than the people around you, which is going to make people throw shade at you. But remember your calling. You're called to be holy, to be a light. Anybody can be like the world. 
It takes zero courage to be like the world, but it takes real courage to be different, to be holy, to be set apart. And so if you want to conquer fear and shame, review your calling. Here's the fifth way, is to remember your reward. Hmm. Now, uh, some people would tell you that personal reward shouldn't be a motivation for serving Jesus, but I ain't buying that. Because if that was true, why would Jesus have said this in the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, watch this, for great is your reward. Jesus promised a reward for anyone who is willing to stand with and suffer with him. Does it suck? <laughs> Come on, somebody. Of course it does. Anything that's amazing isn't easy. So Paul echoes this when he says, and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me on the day of his return. But that prize isn't just for me. Watch this. It's for anyone who eagerly looks forward to his appearing. Are you looking forward to his appearing? He said, if we die with him, we also live with him. If we endure hardship, we'll reign with him. Dang, oh, what a promise. Why wouldn't I want to remember that? Why wouldn't we want to focus on that? I think if we look past the pain to the promise, we'll be more able to overcome fear. I think if I look past the pain to the promise, I will never be ashamed of the gospel. And you know what? You won't be either. You close your eyes all across this place. You know, the first promise before you could have any of the other promises is that anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're here and you'd say, Sean, I'm not saved. Being saved, it's such a Christian word. It's such a church word. What does that mean? Maybe you're here, you don't understand our vernacular, but what being saved means is being rescued. You're a wreck. Your life is in ruins and you need to be rescued. Can I tell you that everything else that you've tried that failed, of course it failed because it wasn't the source. The source of salvation comes from a savior named Jesus. And so today we're going to give you an opportunity to do two things. Confess that you're a sinner and profess that he can change that. So if you're here today and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not saved. I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Jesus guy or a Jesus girl. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. Here's how. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do two things. With nobody looking around, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down. That is going to be your way of confessing that you're a sinner. Secondly, I'm going to pray a few lines in a prayer. I'm going to pause. When I pause, I'm going to have everybody in this room repeat what I just said in that prayer. And if you pray that with me and you meet it in your heart, the Bible says that you will be saved. So if you're in here and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I want to receive him as my Lord and as my Savior with nobody looking around. Would you just raise your hand and make eye contact with me right now? Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Listen, anybody? Okay, I'm going to ask everybody in here to say this after me. Say, Jesus. Come on, say, Jesus. I've got sin in my life, but I don't want it. Please forgive me. Come into my heart. Change me. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. 
be my savior in Jesus name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you're here and you say, I'm a Jesus guy, I'm a Jesus girl, but you would say, you know what? I've been a silent, been a silent one. You say today, something prompted you, challenged you, motivated you to say that, Sean, I want to have the power to be more outspoken about my faith with nobody looking around. Is that you? If you'd raise your hand so that I could pray for you. Yes, yes. God, for these powerful, mighty, challenged believers, God, I pray that you'd give us the strength. You haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. And so today, God, I pray blessings over them. Give them the strength. Give them the wisdom. Give them the discernment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you.